Thank you so much for listening to the Talking Classical podcast. I really hope that you enjoyed this episode. Don't forget that you can subscribe to the Talking Classical podcast and you'll receive a notification every time a new episode is released. You can also follow the Talking Classical podcast on Twitter, on the Talking Classical blog and on Facebook and YouTube. Many thanks for listening once again. I hope that you'll be able to join me for the next episode very soon. I'm really pleased to present this interview with Patrick Terry, fast making a name for himself as one of the world's most up-and-coming young countertenors. Having trained at the Royal Academy of Music under legendary countertenor Michael Chance, now Patrick is on the Yes Parker Young Artists Programme at the Royal Opera House and will be starring in a new production of Handel's Oratorio Susanna at the Lindbury Studio Theatre, the West End's newest and most intimate theatre. This is the first time that Susanna is being performed since its premiere at Covent Garden in 1749. So a wonderful piece of cultural heritage to experience at the place where it was originally performed and is part of the Royal Opera House's Handel series following on from Berenice and Solomon. Susanna is performed by the Yessa Parker Young Artists and is directed by Yessa Parker Young Artist Director Isabel Kessel. All performances are currently sold out at the moment, but of course be sure to check on the website and at the box office for any tickets. But in the meantime, do listen to this interview with Patrick, in which we talk about how he got into music and singing and how he became a countertenor almost by accident and how a chance meeting, or should I say a Michael chance meeting via the power of Google led to his career as a countertenor. We also talk about the history and the development of the countertenor voice and repertoire from the Baroque all the way to countertenors now exploring new repertoire and performing works that wouldn't traditionally be associated with the countertenor voice. We also talk about the unique opportunities that the Yes Parker Young Artists Programme presents, what it's like being a Yes Parker Young Artist and also the production of Susanna. A huge thank you to Patrick for very kindly taking the time out of a full day of rehearsals to talk to me and to the press team at the Royal Opera House for arranging this interview. So do enjoy listening to this interview with Patrick Terry. Cosmetically, a countertenor is someone who sings in their uh, treble range, right? So, and in your um, falsetto, exactly. And the falsetto is uh, something that all men can do physically. And as I understand it, it's sort of your if your vocal folds are like train tracks running Mm -hmm. parallel to each other Mm -hmm. that touch and run perpendicular to. your sort of erect body, yeah, in the, mm-hmm. the, the um, you're physically pinching them in the middle okay. and then only vibrating on half of the full chord. So if you're, so um, the, the longer your vocal folds are, the lower your um, sound will be, right? That's why a bass will have lo- longer folds than a tenor. And a countertenor, the falsetto is actually sort of falsely uh, shortening your folds and only vibrating on a, on half of them. And if you are able to technically and physically um, vibrate and resonate on half of those folds in a in a beautiful way, then you are sort of viable as a countertenor singer. Wow. You said that you sang tenor originally. Mm. So 
When did you discover that you could sing countertenor and how did you find making the transition between the two vocal types? Well, when I was growing up, I sang a lot in church. I did a lot of pop music and like musical theater. Okay. So I did a lot of, uh, if you, you, I mean, there still exists um, videos of me on YouTube sort of um, belting it out with my college acapella group and high school stuff. And and, um, so I didn't start training in a Western classical tradition until I went to college. and when I got there, I just kind of figured that because I could kind of belt high and all of the singing that I'd done been <laughs> sort of higher rather than lower. Yeah. Um, we, my vo- vocal teacher and I sort of looked at tenor repertoire as much as you can sort of classify any 19-year-old singer. And the longer I did it, um, my dear teacher and my mentor, Adriana Zabala, kind of at some point took me aside and said, you know, Patrick, I think that you should really take on a music education degree because we're not sure how viable mm-hmm. your singing voice is. You know, there are, being a tenor is very hard and we're, I, I couldn't really get lots of high notes. I didn't have very many low notes. I had always sung in falsetto sort of in my own time. I thought I didn't, honestly, I just didn't know that it was an option. I didn't know what a couch tenor was. I didn't know very much about broke music. I mean, I didn't know, know much about classical music at all in, in college. I was learning, you know, I was learning so much every day in music history classes. And I didn't grow up in a, I wasn't a chorister. I didn't grow up in an especially um, classical music um, family. You know, I did. I And so just didn't, I was just learning a lot. I'm still learning a lot about it, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and... But I knew that I had a high voice, and and um, one day I was in a practice room with some friends, and we were doing um, the in scenes. We were doing one of the uh, Figaro scenes with, or we were doing the Kufia scene with um, Countess uh, Susanna and Carabino, okay. and the mezzo didn't show up, and I was playing. I was just like kind of like kind of playing along with them, and just kind of essentially just hanging out. And I said, "Well, I'll just sing Carabino," and I did just to make them laugh in the right <laughs> and and. And they and they they said, well, um, Patrick, that's pretty impressive. Like, what's what's going on there? And then we kind of sang. My friend Lauren and I sort of sang through some of her rep, and she's a yeah. soprano. And it was anyway. I took this music to my um, teacher, and I said, "Is there anything that I can do with this? Can I mix this down? Mm-hmm. Can I can I will this enhance my tenor voice at all?" And she looked at me in a kind of beleaguered way and said, Patrick, what have we been doing this whole time? It's very clear that you are a countertenor. Like this is, you know, if I, I, it, took, it took just one scale for her to kind of, for the light switch to go off in her brain and say, no, we have to really make it a change. She gave me a lot, she gave me kind of a reading and listening list to say, this is what a countertenor is. You have, so I essentially Googled countertenor that night. And the first person to come up on my Google search was Michael Chance, who is of course, one of the most famous countertenors. Yeah, but exactly. (laughs) So I went to his website and he was advertising for um, a, uh, a summer program of master classes and intensive study that he still does every summer. Um, at that time it was in Greece. And so I sent him an email and a little like iPhone recording of me singing Julio Cesare or something, like, you know, <laughs> like literally the third time I'd ever sung as a countertenor before in a practice room at the University of Minnesota. And, um, and sent it to him and said, would, would you consider having me come to your course? I've just switched. And, and he, um, he was very sweet. He, 
called my teacher and said, we'd love to invite Patrick to come to this um, course. And my teacher called me and we were so excited. <laughs> and anyway, so that summer, I think this all happened in the spring. By the summer, I was in Greece with Michael for a two-week course. And at the end of the summer, he, he says, you know, Patrick, I want to talk to you about your future. Are you considering a master's degree? Are you considering and, um, me to, to audition for the Royal Academy? The next year, I flew to London. I auditioned for them in person and was offered a, offered a place on the master's program. And then kind of... So it, it all, you know, I'm incredibly lucky because I've been... Yeah. I've, you know, I have a very supportive family. I And I had, had a really, I, really supportive teacher yeah. um, who was able to hold my hand through this transition and point me in the right direction. And then out of the blue, out of no, you know, I didn't do anything to earn that relationship with Michael. Michael really took a chance on me, you know, I mean, so I've I've been, I've been the beneficiary of a lot of luck and a lot of the goodness of others. So it's a, it's, but it did happen all, it all sort of tumbled out very quickly. They say luck is where preparation meets opportunity. Mm. So you must have worked very hard to you know develop that voice over the last few years absolutely I mean absolutely I put in a lot of legwork and a lot of um but you know it's but of course you need uh, you need that opportunity part to to meet the preparation you can work as hard as you know you work yourself until you're blue in the face but if no one's will you know if but if chance doesn't come along and someone is but yeah I'm gonna say like hey you know what kid you've got moxie we want to put you in pictures you know it's it's hard to bootstrap your way to the top so so yeah I'm just I'm I'm very lucky yeah being mentored by Michael Chance I mean Mm -hmm. just amazing groundbreaking singer he was part of that golden age of counter tennis I mean Mm -hmm. it's amazing to get that kind of first-hand knowledge isn't it yeah I think um what in retrospect, the the thing that that I've been maybe most grateful for in my um, continued sort of relationship with Michael is that he was able to open up the repertoire to me at such at such an important point for me. He was able. I mean, one of the things that we did that he so you said he said Patrick, let's sit down, open your notebook. I want to tell you the things that you should learn, okay. because I was coming. I mean, I flew to Greece. I knew about Julia Cesare. Yeah. I mean, that's it. Okay. I had done zero, <laughs> zero concert repertoire, zero okay. baroque opera. I mean, yeah, but and so it, but, in some ways <clears> that makes you, you know, that, that that can almost be a good thing because you go in with an open mind, don't mm. you? Well, absolutely, and and you come in with the, you know, you, you come in with the sort of the freedom of in- ignorance. Exactly, you don't feel like yeah. there are any, um, but at some point, you know, I was 22 and I met Michael. And at yeah. that point, there are a lot of people who've gone through chorister programs at Oxford or Cambridge who've done every yeah. mass that's ever been written and know everything <laughs> are perfect sight readers. And, yeah. you know, there's a lot of catch up to play when you've, when you've decided to take a huge left turn at the, at your master's degree level. Yeah. So Michael was able to say, you know, look at Farnace, look at um, the B minor mass, all of the sort of basic things, but that he was saying to me, but um, he really, I still have that notebook where he, he outlined mm-hmm. a lot of the different concert rep and operatic rep that, and, and then of course I began, I, you know, he's got a, such a wealth of information of how to technically sing and, 
and what is um, stylish and what is witty and how to create ornaments and how to, what are the dance rhythms that we're looking at? I mean, he's a real holistic um, artist in my experience. And yeah. he's he was very interested in developing my singing technique yeah. and equally into, I think that he, that goes, is part and parcel with developing musicianship, mm -hmm. developing a sense of style and um, while maintaining a, um, an individualistic voice, you know, I think as much as he's interested in um, the singer as much as he is in the voice. And that's, um, I, I've benefited greatly from that. Mm, amazing. Mm. Um, there are some recent clips of Michael actually singing on YouTube. I don't know if you've seen them, mm. but um, at the age he is now, I mean, it's absolutely glorious. I mean, mm. there's just so much emotion and the way he just communicates is just it's amazing to listen to i think that's everyone's first comment when we talk about michael chance is that oh, really is, that the communication his the it's not just that his diction in especially english italian and german is you know perfect yeah. but that he's declaiming he first and foremost you know he whole, does yeah he lives it and it's and he teaches that too you know does there's he, um... there's um there's uh, a misconception, I think, that everything about being an artist or everything about being a singer is kind of alchemical, like you've either got it or you don't. Yeah, no, I totally get that. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. and um, it's so much of it isn't. So much of it is technique. So much of it is um, just, you know, knowing what, knowing what to physically do, knowing what yeah. to wait for, knowing what to... And and Michael, because he is has so much experience and he's such a force of uh, of ex of communication and expression, mm -hmm. he's really good at um, teaching people how yeah. to do that. I mean, because I'm always so struck whenever I hear Counter Tenors live. I'm always so struck by just how powerful and muscular you know the Counter Tenor voice can be, and I think it's so different to listening to it on. A recording because you can actually just feel the vibrations and because of the way that the counter tenor voice is set up and mm. well i think that that's i think they're that counter tenors are a polarizing force yeah. in um for, for i mean essentially for everybody because there are some people who live and die by the counter tenor voice and are totally okay. into it and it's there it's the only thing they want to listen to okay. and then there are lots of people who are completely turned off by the concept um, from the jump yeah. and I think that that manifests itself in some um, educational situations countertenors can be held should be can be and should be held to the same standard as any other singer are working with um, the same kinds of foundational techniques about yeah. breath breath support and resonance and diction and legato that every other singer is working on and when you have a countertenor who's singing well and expressing honestly, it's a it's it's it can it's it's the same level of special as when you've got a soprano who's singing well and and expressing honestly, singing violetta or saying you yeah. know what I mean. It's yeah. it's all it, you know. We're all trying to go for the same. We're all looking to go to the same goal, you know. A countertenor isn't, you know, it's not apples and oranges. It's yeah. It's just it's all the voice. Yeah, yeah. So, 
who are some of your favourite counter tenors to listen to? Hmm. Or you can just say who your favourite some of some of your favourite singers are. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, I have of course a very very special place in my heart for um, uh, Michael Chan. Michael, of course. He's just got. <laughs> I mean, he's 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 just class. Yeah. Um, I love to listen to Andre Scholl. Um, I think Bejun Meta is just spectacular. He does repertoire that's fiendishly difficult, especially operatic repertoire that's yeah. low and and fast and and some of the hardest technical singing. And mm-hmm. I'm just so impressed with so much of so many of his recordings. Um, I kind of, I mean. But my favorite singer, if I could choose a singer to sound yeah. exactly like, whose repertoire kind of overlaps with mine a bit, is it's uh, Dame Janet Baker. Oh, I think wow. <laughs> I, I mean, my um, first teacher uh, was a mezzo-soprano, and okay. I, um, I just... I, Dame Janet Baker, she's just the... Living legend? Uh, yeah, of course, living yeah. legend. I just love... I just love how she treats text. I love the sound that she makes. Have you um, listened to Brian Brian Asar? I'm thinking you're you're from America. So oh yes, absolutely. The great he's Brian amazing. Asar, yes, taking too soon. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh, he's great. Yeah, of he was course. such. He, I think he was so groundbreaking because, I mean, I think he was one of the first counter tenors to really take that sort of voice and put it on, you know, mainstream opera mm. stage, not just singing, you know, in that light style but I mean like we were just saying earlier treating the voice like you would for a mezzo-soprano or a absolutely tenor, say. absolutely yeah. he was he sort of um I mean you can see how I mean if I may be so bold you can see how kind of the baton is passed and passed and someone like um uh someone like Michael who uh who, what we would say now created such a core repertory for um countertenors in Bach, Handel, Vivaldi, um, and you know, into Britain, but like the real, the real um, core rep. Yeah, yeah. And someone like Brian Asawa and David Daniels, in some ways, were able to take that and and expand it even further. And of course, Michael did. Uh, I mean, Michael's sung it all everywhere and he's <laughs> done modern rep. And but but you know, people in terms of how the public perceives countertenors, I think. Now, more than ever before, we are, like, the voice is considered as a part of opera in general. It's not a specialist, it's not as specialist as it once was, and it's because of singers like Brian Asal and and Michael and, uh, you know, everyone who's who's done, you know, Philippe Jaruski, who's released discs of Hahn and Schubert and, you know, and... Justin Davies, who's doing a Schubert recital at the Wigmore Hall, people you keep pushing those boundaries and keep proving to audiences and casting directors and everyone that that countertenor voices can carry, can be expressive in lots of different ways, suit lots of different rep, have nuance to the individual, and you know it's 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 an exciting time to be a countertenor. Yeah, and on that note, I mean you're here on the Yes Park Young Artist Program, so are you the? Am I right in saying are you this? First or second countertenor to be taken on the program? I don't know. <laughs> I'm the first countertenor to be um, on, yes, to be an official <laughs> Yelly Parker Young the artist. First. Yes. I mean, that's groundbreaking thing. I mean, that's. It, yeah, yeah. It's, it's very exciting. It's amazing. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah, I mean, it's a huge honor. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. what was it like um, applying for that program? 
um, how, what was the application, mm. the audition process like? Well, um, so I applied in the spring of my last year of opera school at the Royal Academy of Music. I absolutely did not think that I was going to get a job here. I mean, I definitely thought I was going to have to go back to America. But I thought, okay, if I can get through the first round, if I could sing for um, Dave Gowland, that would be amazing. If I could sing for Peter Katna, that would be amazing. Mm -hmm. If I could get down to the second round, that would be incredible. If I got to the third round, I mean, you know, know, and just to get in front of these people who are some of the biggest movers and shakers in the biz um, is a huge honor and, and an incredible opportunity. So I was just in it for as long as fate would allow. Um, So the, the audition processes that you send in, or at least when I did it, you send in a um, video or maybe just audio, um, and it's kind of a pre-screening round, mm-hmm. and then uh, they, you know, listen to countless hours of people singing and invite. They sort of whittle down the field and invite people to come in in person. Um, you sing, and then it's three live rounds, um, and my <laughs> my the and it's over the course of like a week. I so I went in for my first round, and got a second round and then the day of uh, the night before my second round I get a call um that say okay they uh Glyndebourne is touring the Brett Dean Hamlet and one of their singers has fallen ill the cover is ill as well Patrick can you come in and step into this role because I covered I covered Guildenstern in the festival and okay. they needed a Rosencrantz okay and I didn't you know I didn't learn Rosencrantz but it's essentially the same music kind of in canon okay. and I said okay I would love to do that it would be my um Glyndebourne debut but I've got this round two audition is there a way and um, you know Glenn was kind of like well we need an answer right now and I was like well I have to talk to the opera house and blah blah and so I was and it was um really kind of down to the wire and finally they said okay we can move your audition at the opera house to be the first one in the morning and then you can get right on a train go down to Plymouth sing that night and then, um, and then see where. So I did my second round audition at like nine forty-five a.m. and thought I just did a second round audition at the Opera House. I'm gonna go make my debut at Glenmore. This is very exciting. I'm grateful for whatever happens. And then I found out after I made my debut in Plymouth that I got a third round audition. And um, and I, so it was just like a huge. It was a really big week for me. And also I did. Uh, that week, I um, did a very, I sang one song on a program with Imogen Cooper on, at the Wigmore Hall. And so it was just a big, it was a very, very stressful, exciting, formative week yeah. for me as a young person. Yeah. I think the reason that if, if, if I did well in the audition process, it's because I just had no time. I was learning this role on the train to Plymouth, like okay. had the score and was like trying to learn it. And, and then like, I, I mean, it was... Yeah. It was uh, a, a bit a bit insane. Wow. Mm. So you said we were just talking earlier, you're in your second year now mm-hmm. on the programme. So how have you found the whole experience of being here at Covent Garden, learning from some of the greats and getting to perform in amazing productions here? And... Mm. Yeah, it's, it is a, a, a huge honour. Um, and I, I mean... This program is, I, th- I think, unique, as best as I understand. You know, it's the only young artist program I've, I've done. But um, because, of course, we get 
you get main stage experience, you're working with lots of young artists, are working with Tony Papano, are working with leading conductors from all over the world, leading singers from all over the world. And I mean, yes, of course, and that's really, that's a huge part of it. But also, I mean, you know, you come in every day, you have language coachings in any language that you want, specifically singing diction or or just general language um you have movement classes and alexander techniques and um countless opportunities for vocal coaching and and you're able to to build your own schedule so i mean obviously there's um, we've got an amazing administrative team that are building the schedules for us it's like you know a full-time job because there are so many alumni and so many current artists and everybody's schedules a beast it's amazing it's a it's a truly um it's it's a really special program and i've benefited so much from it and um as someone who doesn't have who's who's still building a name in the uk and in europe as some you know i didn't grow up here and i don't have um and you know i don't have any family here or or any you know i don't have teachers who live here it's it's been in value and so many people come from outside the uk there's just no better way to establish yourself than to be connected with royal opera house mm. and you know that really it, it carries a lot of clout and that's it, it means a lot it yeah means a lot. amazing mm. and so do you feel that you've grown as an artist as a performer over the last two years with the program and um what have you learned so far from mm. the program i think I think I've developed so much in the last year and a half. I've learned a lot about, because of course I've learned a lot about singing technique. I've learned a lot about, you know, the just fundamental things. My technique's improved, my stagecraft's improved, my diction has improved. But I think what I've learned that is really specific to this house, I've learned what it's like to be in a professional, high-stakes opera working environment where, uh, you know, time is money and you need to be prepared and you need, we don't, you know, we only have so much time to put this on its feet. We've got new productions or, you know, I was covering Carabino in the um, uh, say that they do every year. And so, and um, uh, uh, John L.A. Gardner was conducting and there's, you know, you are there, the stakes are quite high and it takes certain, you know, it, it takes getting used to, it takes skills. There are, there are, um, you need to, it takes certain skills to be successful in that environment. And that's something that you can, I think that it's, at some point you have to do it. You have to test yourself. Yeah. And at the Opera House, you're able, they give the opportunity, the performance opportunity, and not just the performance opportunity, but the opportunity to be in the room, to see how it works, to see what's expected of you. What does it mean to be prepared? What, do, what does it mean to know your translations? What does it mean to arrive on time? And and when you're not a student, when the stakes are high, when you're being paid, you're at work. Mm-hmm. It's just a different thing. Mm-hmm. So and and because that's our full time gig, you're in production after production after production after production. Um, it's a huge luxury uh, because you don't we don't nece- you don't necessarily have to take on um, side gigs or do. You know, you're, you, that's just something that you learn. Two mm-hmm. years of being in production after production after production after production, you learn what it's like to be on that schedule. How do you cope with 
memorising texts and music? Do you have a particular approach, or I don't have my, uh, an alumnus of the pro alumna of the program, um, Jacqueline Stucker is has this, and my dear dear friend, she's got like. You know, every rule she has is like a spreadsheet, and she's got all of the um, the original text, and the IPA, and the um, <laughs> word-for-word translation, and the poetic translation, and the colloquial translation, and it's all color-coded, yeah. and like, on this day I coached this, and on this day I coached this, and like, it's, it's truly spectacular you know it's totally i mean and she's like so prepared all the time and um i i speak i i am on my bike i'm a bike commuter Mm -hmm. and so most of my commute speaking text Mm -hmm. (laughs) speaking text on my bike and getting it in my mouth and getting it in and listening i record everything and i listen i try to listen to all of, everything that I've recorded in the day, I try and listen in the evening and speak and hear myself make mistakes and hear myself um, inflect something and say, ooh, that's a sound that I like, ooh, that's not a sound that, that I like. Um, and and I'm actually, it's maybe controversially, I'm a big believer in um, you can't you can't actually be completely prepared for the for a, a rehearsal room mm, because yeah. there are millions, especially in Baroque opera or maybe whatever, particularly in Baroque opera, because there are millions of decisions, musical decisions that have to be made in the rehearsal, mm-hmm. you know? Well, I mean, we're, we're decisions like how is this going to be orchestrated or what kind of ornaments are you going to be doing or what words, are you, you know, it's not as um, paint by numbers as some other musical experiences are which which isn't to belittle their a potential for expressivity but like um you know it's a bit more of a blank canvas when you walk into doing Susanna yeah. you know that's there there's not much on the page to direct you and so if you walk in and say these are all my ornaments this is exactly how I'm gonna do it I'm totally prepared and completely and uh, and rigidly so then you, there's no room for that like last 10% of expressivity so yeah. so yeah, I guess I mean I don't really have a I don't have a process and it's different if you you know Susanna's in English so it's not as much I don't have to think about memorizing as much because as yeah. long as I know exactly what I'm saying and yeah. and um but like for Italian you know it takes a bit more takes a bit more repetition and yeah. Yeah. and takes a, a a lot more um deciding about you know, it's hard to memorize sounds, much easier to memorize thoughts and um, drama and situations. And so when you have kind of archaic Italian, the work, the pre-memorization work is to say, okay, what do I, what, what does this Italian actually mean as in a word for word? And then what does it, what is, what's the subtext? What's the game? What am I trying to say? And then once, for me at least, once you kind of have that you have the story in your head it's easier to slot in the sounds Mm -hmm. but starting from sounds it's like memorizing all the numbers in pi it's like Mm, 3.14 emoji of a flower (laughs) (laughs) so you're just saying there that you are preparing for Handel Susanna here Mm -hmm. in a few weeks time so do you think that you can just tell us a little bit about um, the role that you're playing, mm-hmm. where your character fits in within the overall plot, and a little bit more about the opera in general and how you're preparing? Absolutely. Um, so Susanna is um, an oratorio that uh, the, we're staging 
And the story is um, an apocryphal biblical text of um, Susanna. Uh, they're, um, they're enslaved, they're in sort of an enslaved community in Israel. And I'm playing Joachim, who is Susanna's husband. And uh, they're living in sort of slavery and oppression. And it, for some reason or another, kind of unspecified in the libretto, um, Joachim is called away sort of on business or something. And when he leaves, um, two of the town elders take advantage of his absence and force themselves upon Susanna. And then when she denies them, they um, wrongfully accuse her of adultery. And the entire community um, turns against her and uh, puts her, uh, sentences her to death until um, sort of a prophet Daniel sort of stands up in the mm -hmm. middle of the crowd and says, sort of um, filled with the Holy Spirit and sort of the um, omniscience of God yes. and says, I know this to be true because of and this, there's some sort of like, because of the style of the tree that he mentioned in his testimony mm -hmm. is, is, you know, not inconsistent with the style of tree yes. where the yes actually happened. Yeah. And so they must be, <laughs> and anyway, proves Susanna's um, innocence. And in all this time, Joachim is away. And then Joachim comes back at the end of the trial um, to kind of, because he hears in his travels that this is happening, he comes back really worried, sees that uh, Susanna has been absolved of all wrongdoing, and they sort of celebrate. And so that's the basic text, and uh, Isabel Kettle, who's our um, Yeti Parker Young Artist uh, director, has reimagined this to fit into a um, sort of near future kind of climate apocalypse okay. setting. <laughs> so instead of being in slavery in Israel, we're in sort of a, um, you know, 50 years in the future in Cornwall, where climate change, <laughs> <laughs> climate change has accelerated to such an extent that um, there's no drinking water. Um, everyday society has kind of destabilized so much, especially in this rural community. And there, there's not enough food to eat and everyone's kind of, uh, the sun, it's very hot and um, everyone is feeling the oppression of climate change. And, um, and you know, I can't speak for Isabel, except to say this, the raw story of essentially uh, a, uh, an assault against a woman and then her um, being sentenced to death by a community because of her uh, sexual impurity really resonates in, I mean, across across history, but especially in this point in human history because of the Me Too movement, because of how we're looking at violence in women across the sort of social spectrum. And so I think that she's very interested in telling the story of um, sexual assault through the eyes of Susanna, not through the eyes of her husband or through the eyes of the community, but really to um, ask the audience to consider how this affects Susanna, how, what, what um, was her life before it happened, what was the change within her yeah. um, when everyone she knew, not only when people she knew took advantage of her, but when everyone she knew turned against her. Mm -hmm. And then we have to sort of reckon with this idea that the only reason everything works out in the end is because she's found to be pure and innocent. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what does it mean to be 
if what does it mean if you're a woman to for society to find you only valuable if you're pure and innocent what 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 is that expectation and what is your baseline value if maybe you don't meet all of those expectations but that's the that's what Isabel's vision is I as best as I can explain it. And um, I think it's going to be a really interesting and powerful show. Um, And so Joachim uh, is someone who we have a big setup. There's a lot of time at the beginning of the opera that where you see Joachim and Susanna together, they have a really loving relationship. And I think what the audience can learn from Joachim is that he, he can, can't, know what happened to Susanna. He can know the particulars of it. He can know that she's um, safe and found innocent after the fact. But even though he loves her and even though he wants to empathize with her and even though he's so invested in her as a person and, and the two of them as a couple, there's just a boundary between the two of them because of this horrific experience. And I think maybe i mean for me as someone who's kind of exploring that dramatically it it makes me think about all the people in my life and what they've um what what experiences they've had that keep me from knowing them completely yeah. when i may have thought oh my gosh i know everything about this person or or i totally understand where they're coming from yeah. and it might it might inspire people his his kind of story within this might inspire people sitting in the audience to consider what they don't know about the people around them and the people that they're closest to and maybe um maybe work a a bit harder to be more sensitive be a bit more understanding and i think that's i don't know i think that's a powerful message yeah and i gather that um this oratory hasn't been performed at covent garden since it's premiere so i mean this is going to be a very special occasion isn't it yes and it's with the london handle festival it's a co-production and it's um yeah there's some to to use a a business uh buzzword there's a lot of synergy there you know it's the first time it's back in the house where it was premiered it's with the london handle festival who's so dedicated and internationally known for Um, creating really high quality um, Handelian experiences and it's with the Royal Opera House that's you know at the top of the field so it's a it's an exciting it's an exciting sort of overlap of of um, felicity yeah amazing yeah yeah um, and, and so you feel very comfortable singing this the Baroque repertoire then Handel um, is that something that fits your voice very comfortably or is it something that you've kind of been building into your repertoire if you know what I mean just kind of Mm. yeah well yeah um, I mean firstly yes I I love singing Handel I think um you know there are lots of different roles and some of them suit me a bit better and some than than others but um when I was considering transitioning to from a tenor to a countertenor my teacher at the time Adriana Zavallar said very wisely don't do don't make this choice too hastily consider the repertoire go into the music listen to it listen to the roles that you'll be learning and possibly singing and do they speak to you are they people who uh, is it music that you love are these experiences that you think you can um that you can perform well that you can add to that you can enhance that that your artistry will enhance is it something that does it is it something that will fulfill you as a performer because you know, the repertoire is narrow and I mean, widening all the time, but, but the core repertoire is, is quite narrow. And, um, and so I'm lucky that 
that's this music really really I think there's there's just such an honest expressivity to so much of Handel's music and and it's and it's fun there are lots of dances there are lots of um sort of very physical movements and the, and the, and the and lots of coloratura fioratura things yeah, that yeah. are really really um agitating and then you have these moments of total stillness and silence that just break your heart and you know Susanna is up there with all you know with all of the best known Handel works of Cesare and Alcina and Messiah I mean it's got some really to borrow a Britishism stonking music so it's yeah I really I really enjoy seeing it and and as a country tenor, it's what I do it's a lot of Baroque repertoire it's a lot of um modern repertoire and and um 20th 21st 20th and 21st century music and um I really I really like doing those things I think that it suits my voice and yeah it's yeah. sort of sort of where we all kind of specialize yeah I know that you said that you're gonna go and run back to your house mm-hmm. so is that a way that you keep your voice supple and um, is that part of your training as well everybody's a little bit different I tend to not worry myself so much about um making sure that like the instrument is at its finest quality (laughs) in terms of like my everyday activity. So the only things that I kind of do, I don't like to um, talk in pubs or bars too much. I mean like, so I'm, so I tend to be kind of a homebody, but, um, but um, yeah, the running I do just for my psychology. Some people think like, Oh my gosh, are you running? It's raining. Aren't you going to get sick or you're running? It's too cold or it's too hot or you're going to lose a lot of water or you're going to, you know, they may very well be right. And maybe, maybe my voice takes a hit from running a lot, but it makes me happy and helps me process and helps. So it's more of a, more of a holistic health thing than it is a vocal maintenance thing. I try, I, 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 I try to keep, I think sometimes people can get really, really particular about like, well, I can't eat this and I can't eat this and acid reflux. And, <laughs> and you know, it's lots of, I, I'm lucky where I don't have acid reflux. And I, so I just have to kind of trust myself that like, whatever, don't worry, my voice is going to be fine. And until I find a real problem with that, then I have to fix it, you know, then, then I will. But yeah. right now I don't, it's, I don't think too much about vocal maintenance, honestly. If you're singing well, yeah, it's fine. Exactly. I have one more question, <clears throat> yeah. and that is your favorite aria to sing. Oh my! Favorite it can be either aria. in the show or it can be generally. Or mm. I think my favorite aria to sing is. I think it's Obarmadi from the Matthew Passion. Oh, it's absolutely beautiful. I think it is. I think it's so 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 stunningly beautiful, and um, yeah, that's it. From the from the from this opera though, or, or this oratorio, um, there is a beautiful aria called "On Fair Euphrates Verdant Side." That is, um, I like the slow jams. I'll say I'm a, I'm a, I'm a slow jam, <laughs> so I I like the ballads. Um, that's but I'm very Freddie's Verdant Side. It's on Spotify and several different recordings. It's mwah, very beautiful. I like that one a lot. Yeah. In some ways, the slow arias are, you know, the more um, exposing, aren't they? I think so. I think that there are um, 
when you're singing slow legato music as you said there's it's it's a real it's very vulnerable there's nothing to hide behind you're what you're doing is just putting when you when you when you pass air through your vocal folds a, a sound comes out and you're giving it to everyone and um and it's it's very beautiful. I think every you know everybody likes a slow jam because you really <laughs> get to see the person, yeah. the real the singer, not the voice. Yeah. And um, I mean, the voice is very important too. And in a fioratura, it's very technically interesting and it can be very exciting. And and of course, there's there are, you reveal parts of yourself. But to me, there's nothing more revealing than someone singing a sustained note yeah. and just hearing how they grow or decay or what. I mean, it's you hear every kind of ridge and ripple in their voice and it says something about their character it says something about their history it says something about the music in general and, and it and it of course very selfishly makes you think about your own self and that and that is why we love that's why i love art so yeah. i think that's a beautiful way to end <laughs> that you share your music with everyone when you sing you share something of you and your personality mm, absolutely i mean isn't that what art is i mean art, what we're trying to do is connect with each other we're trying to teach each other empathy by saying, consider this story, yeah. consider it through my through my lens, and then consider it through your lens, and let's all we're trying to connect each other through space and time. Mm -hmm. What does Mozart think about this, and what does Fiordaligi think about this? But then, what do I think about this? And what does your mom think about this? And what does this make you? You know, I mean, the, you, we're um, it's not just because it's not just for the technical beauty, or it's not just to make everything precise. And, so that we can teach each other how to love each other, I think. Beautiful. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you very I'll much. I'll let you go and get